I mean, the first big bug bounty program that I saw, which is definitely not the first that has ever existed, is, uh, is GitHub's, because um, they started to take it quite seriously. They started to... Um, <laughs> started to woof. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Offscript by Hey Radio, a podcast for the tech community. My name is Josh Nesbitt and I run a software consultancy called Stack based in Leeds, as well as the Hey events and conferences. I'm joined today by my co-host James Hall, who runs an agency called Parallax, also based in Leeds. So James, what are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about securing web applications. So what are we going to talk about today, James? Today, I wanted to chat a little bit about web application security. I think it's really important to get right, and it's it's only getting more and more important. More cyber attacks, more ransomware attacks. You see it in the news all the time. And a, a lot of the stuff I'm going to chat about is more just good application hygiene, I think. Yeah, I guess there's a responsibility for engineers to build applications in a slightly different way or, or kind of a more correct way. Uh, and then there's also kind of a, a more social conscience in terms of social engineering and all the sorts of stuff um, that we've covered in previous podcasts and, and hey content, I guess. Yeah, that's it. I think it's very easy to lose your customer's trust as well if you have a, a big data breach. Yeah. Um, and just giving things a little nip and a tuck is okay but it's not going to go far enough to protect you from all the nasties out there not everyone's on your side are they so absolutely not no um there's a lot of bug bounties out there as well uh, with pretty high uh, costs attached to them so there's a lot of temptation for people to start finding vulnerabilities in applications and a lot of uh, motivation i guess yeah i think bug bounty programs are a good idea yeah. uh, especially when they're, they're sort of funded well and they they're pretty clear with what terms they'll pay out on yeah i've seen some security researchers get a bit miffed because they've found something that they think is quite serious and the company goes oh it's not a problem <laughs> and then they just ignore it will not fix yeah exactly um so yeah i think security researchers have a bit of a bad time because it can it can take a lot of time and effort to find some of these exploits yeah um, to the point where it's actually more valuable to to sell the exploits like that mm. israeli firm that that's recently done a a really nasty like ios bug Oh, right. um, it's basically a well-crafted PDF, um, right. and as soon as anything on the operating system tries to preview it, it can backdoor your iPhone and install spyware, which is pretty <laughs> fucking terrifying. <laughs> um, but they just sell that to government. Yeah, so the first um, bug bounty program I think I took seriously was um, was the GitHub one, which um, was was one of the first ones that I'd seen. Although obviously not the first to do a bug bounty program. Yeah. Um, but they obviously started to talk about, as you mentioned, the positive side to bug bounties, uh, a more positive, um, conscious attitude towards security, and, and making sure that everyone kind of felt that they were uh, both addressing issues seriously, but also encouraging people to try and find those holes themselves. Yeah, I mean they. They're very much developer-centric. Like they're, everyone that uses their product is pretty much a developer, yeah. or at least in the beginning, it's moving away from that. Yeah. And there were a few clangers. Like they did have to do a lot of stuff to get to make it work well in containers and stuff. And mm. 
even recently you can still commit as other people and that's a fundamental flaw of git itself yeah you can just uh, imitate, imitate other people <laughs> by email can't you yeah so, that's it there's yeah. no security mechanisms in place because linus didn't didn't give a shit about that because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he just gets things mailed in on a mailing list and uses pgp keys that's all dealt with separately yeah. so <laughs> yeah. he didn't care about his source control doing that kind of stuff but yeah they had big issues with their permission system and all sorts of areas so yeah bug bounty for them was a really good idea facebook had a few clangers as well mm. um they do you remember that feature where you could change who you are like yes. whether it's like impersonate yeah impersonate yeah. a company that you own or whatever i remember yeah that had a gaping hole in it where you could impersonate other things yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you can see how that bit of code base is gonna yeah. have some rough edges yeah um, no amount of integration tests or unit tests sometimes miss the edge case you know obviously that shouldn't be the case but I, i've written a few of those systems i'm sure you have as well but um it, it's always a bit of a nervous feature to write isn't it <laughs> yeah we've got we've got that in a few apps where you switch between different tenants and it's good for debugging but yeah you want to get that little bit of code right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise a bad yeah um yeah absolutely but yeah, the bug bounty is a good thing if you're a large, large organization. If you're a smaller organization, less so, because your web app's probably just going to be hacked by random parties <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rather than security researchers. Uh, probably the first thing that will target your app is bots. So it's, you might not know this, but if you're using some automatic service that uses Let's Encrypt, mm. um, there's actually a... A certificate transparency log right so your seemingly secret qa and uat urls are actually being published on the internet oh and then the bots will go and see if it's got any sort of regular regularly installed open software on there so if you're happily plodding away and you've installed mongodb with all the defaults and one of your devs actually accidentally plunks some prod data in there yeah you think that domain no one knows it they do because some bot's gone and got you your Let's Encrypt certificate. And mm. yeah, they, they will just, it will just try all the things. And then a human will come along and go, ah, that's a MongoDB with some <laughs> cool stuff in it. Um, Let's have a crack. Yeah, but the, it'll be the bot sounding it out first. Cause mm. No one's going to manually go into your small web app and check to see if you've got these services running. That That's all automated now. Yeah, I remember in the in the kind of early days of Heroku, especially when you were using a lot of Heroku add-ons. Um, I don't know if you remember but the procurement of a service like Mongo, like any of the PG databases, like any of the mail services. They just kind of spun them up, and you got a URL with usually all of the all of the bits um, or the auth credentials in the URL, and yeah, yeah, very easy to kind of lose track when you're creating new apps when you're you know spinning things up to make sure you do the cleaning up after and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and making sure that devs aren't aren't chucking live content in in staging areas and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the 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 sophistication of some of the bots that will go and try your applications is just getting better. Um, and then, yeah, good hygiene around how you deploy applications, how you move environment variables from your sort of development machines to QA to staging to, through to production. Um, so we actually encrypt all of our environment variables per client in separate vaults, encrypted vaults, right. um, which we can add and remove developers to, depending on whether or not they're working on the project. That's good. Um, you'll find some agencies where 
it might be everyone's got access to everything just because it's easy. Yeah. Um, but you can't get ISO compliance, um, ISO 9000, 27001, sorry, compliance with that kind of setup. Yeah. Um, and you'll go into organizations where they'll literally have a, a password document that yeah. they share around. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, what are you doing? Um, I'm still seeing that these days as well. It's quite quite concerning even now. You know, there's a lot of places that still do that sort of practice. Yeah, well, the easiest way to get a password is to ask someone for it, which I think we've mentioned before. Yeah. But something that really scared me the other day was um, I was reading an article about a chap that had figured out if you a lot of slack um, signups you can you can sign up if you have an at yourcompany.com domain yes and he figured out that if you have a Zendesk running on that domain it might be support at or tickets at or something like that you can just fill that in and if it's public go and fetch that ticket and mm. then click on the link and get straight into Slack. Mm. And Slack is where everyone posts everything, everything, <laughs> sensitive commercial information. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just passwords, secrets, copy pasted links to everything, unsecured Google docs. <laughs> yeah. Anyone with this link can edit Google docs, which are just everywhere. Yeah. Um, so that's how they get in. It's nothing too sophisticated. Yeah, I, I think, um, so it's interesting you mentioned that ISO compliance, because obviously when you're, a lot of the time when you're starting a, a business or you're starting an agency in, in particular, you know, you, you might not start with that mindset of, you know, securing your secrets separately per project. And, you know, maybe you do start with the password document and it, it matures over time. How hard do you think it is to put those in place from the start? Do you think, do you think it's kind of just something that once you've done it, it's, it's second nature or is it kind of quite a big pain? I think if you automate it, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, so we have a thing that automatically sets it up a vault per repo right and then the committers to that repo get access all oh, right that's great um so it's almost easier to do the right thing than it is to circumvent it so in that case does gitlab become the central um permissions kind of source of truth yeah so we don't use gitlab but we use some um we use git based source control and the the scripts we run in bamboo will will go and yeah sort out the vaults and stuff that we use um but yeah if you automate it then it makes it a lot easier to do the right thing um yeah. but yeah the, i think the cicd server is a is a weak point mm. in a lot of pipelines because that's that's got everything on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so that needs to be properly secure, doesn't it? But I think it's particularly tricky with some of the some of the more full stack kind of CI/CD flows, where you you want to connect to services for real, and you want to do this and that. And usually, particularly in some of the apps that I've built in the past, you know, you'll have environment variables with, with highly sensitive information in it. And as you said, it's that that's the single point of failure there, I guess. Yeah, we've we've actually got a canary environment variable that's set in most of our infrastructure setups, and if that's found in in any outgoing response, it'll block the whole request. Oh, that's good. Um, with thinking that if someone manages to, like a developer could leave a, a debug statement in that, yeah. that the debug's a variable that somehow has got environment variables in it. Mm. It's, you can see how it could easily be done. But, um, or, or an attacker figures out a way to sort of trigger that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely worth doing. Um, so that that um, that Slack um, Slack hack <laughs> that you found, um, I mean, was that um, exposed as part of a, a bounty, or was that just someone that disclosed it, you know, publicly? Or so he got in touch with 
quite a few companies that were affected. Right. But he didn't check loads and loads. Um, and he actually published about it, uh, like published the details to it before he'd managed to get in touch with loads of people for the sole reason that he thought holding on to it might be worse. Right. Uh, because other people might have figured this out and be using it sort of covertly, like holding on to a known issue is a bad thing. Just mining data from instances and doing bad things. Well, if you're a security researcher, it's a bit of a minefield. Like, do you, yeah, what do you do? Do you, do you publicly disclose it straight away? Probably not. <laughs> not um, if you want your reputation to remain intact, I imagine. Yeah, that's it. Um, it's a tricky one, but you just want to get out there eventually. Otherwise, people aren't going to fix it. You have, you, I've definitely seen instances where people have um, tried to do the responsible disclosure and obviously not really got anywhere with it. And, and as a result of that, they've gone, I'm, I'm just so angry that no one's listening now. I'm just going to publish a big blog post on it and maybe they'll listen then. Yeah, well, that's the thing that Moxie had when he figured out you could pretty much sign any certificate from any other certificate. This was way back when <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> internet security was in its infancy. Crypto is a little bit less mature, possibly. Yeah, Microsoft was like, this is not a problem, this would never happen. And he's like, well, it is. So then he was, he was like, well, I'm going to build a proof of concept where it will sign any, it will make on the fly any SSL certificate needed and inject it in the middle. Uh, and that's when he started releasing his man in the middle sort of tools. Uh, so there's a fine line between helping the hackers and helping the community defend against the hackers, isn't there? Yeah. Um, Very fine line. The <laughs> they're the same. <laughs> um, <laughs> the community may be the hackers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people, security surgeons, have issues when they're posting content to explain a hack. Um, often they're doing that at risk of mm. of being coming under fire for for helping people out or. It's like you you wouldn't publish a, a bomb manual, would you? <laughs> no. But if you look at the way some open source, well, most open source projects work, you know, the the ticketing systems, the issues, you know, on GitHub, for example, they're, they're all in the open. So if you, want, if you want to work through a bug, which may actually turn into a pretty serious vulnerability, might end up being a CVE. Yeah. If you're doing that in the open <laughs> and people are watching it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Google had that a few times on the Chromium lists, which I'm signed up to, where mm. there's some of them just disappear yeah. and then come back again later yeah. when they've figured it out yeah. <laughs> like no right bye <laughs> which is the correct way to yeah, i think so yeah it's especially something like chrome because everything is secretly chrome now <laughs> yeah. um yeah. back when we've had a nice spread of browsers because uh, even electron is webkit yeah and yeah same with same with a lot of the frameworks you know essentially if you can sniff what frameworks are, are sites using and you know it's a certain version or something yeah you know that version is getting a patch for a certain cve yeah that's <laughs> off, it off you go <laughs> yeah yeah no it's uh it's pretty terrifying <laughs> um so i guess um I guess what makes we've touched on it a little bit but what makes us a, a secure app what makes a good uh, a good secure app I think a good secure app is ideally you've got some sort of way of tracking the dependencies that are involved yeah. and making sure that they're secure mm. so you could use some third party tool like sync I hope I'm saying that right um, where they have a really good database of security issues and software packages and versions and they can check your code base to see if there's any known vulnerabilities lurking in there yeah um, and yeah it just gives you a really nice way to quickly upgrade those dependencies because mm. um, way back when before 
package managers were a big thing. Mm. Wasn't that a nice time? <laughs> <laughs> you you may end up with it, it did make updating packages more difficult. Yeah. If before package managers existed, because you'd have to fold DLLs or whatever it is into your code base. Um, but now that package managers do exist, it, it lets you easily version control like the changes and stuff yeah i guess it's um and i'm not going to go on a big ramp about npm and package managers <laughs> and stuff but it, it is interesting how you can see the network of dependencies and really see where some of these vulnerabilities um you know sit yeah um, because often especially in a lot of the common javascript applications some of the dependencies that get exploited are, are completely invisible to the end user being the developer you know yeah yeah if you install react obviously there's a lot of dependencies with that some of the underlying libs that, that get, you know, um, CVEs found that, you know, it's quite hard to figure out where you need to look. Um, yeah, no, that's true. Um, I think a lot of modern libraries like React make it very obvious when you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So they've got that dangerously set in a HTML attribute. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're really knowing you're doing a bad thing. Which is a really great piece of UI for, for the code, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's for developer experience. If you if you're typing out the word dangerous, <laughs> you, you you really know you're doing bad. Unless it's the fifteenth time, or you're like, oh, this yeah. is this is fine. Well, one of the things that I recommended to a client recently was that they search their dependencies for the usage of that dangerously set. Oh, right. And it's surprising how many libraries do use that. <laughs> yeah. But when you're a library or you're doing something odd, you do need it. Yeah. Like Saying you're rendering some markdown or something, but you need to really make sure you're not passing unescaped unfiltered user data into the dom basically cause yeah I, I think a lot of them as well they they some libraries use you know unofficial apis so that you have to kind of work around things occasionally and yeah uh, especially in the more mature frameworks like react they're starting to really think about how they expose you know things like that to plugin authors and, and it's getting a lot better isn't it yeah and i guess the only problem is that at any point anyone could just do document get element by id and just yeah the whole the whole thing's gone out the window but yeah. you can have linters and stuff that'll warn you of stuff like that um i think do think code quality checks and linting and static analysis in your build pipeline is a really good idea mm. um especially if you can adopt it sort of incrementally just start with the basics even just getting stuff formatted nicely like the correct tabulation and mm. spaces in the right places and let you see potential bugs more easily yeah I, um, I guess the tricky thing there is if you've not introduced linting and static analysis and things like that from the start you know linting's a bit of a less severe example but you know it's, it's important because it's a it's a lot of effort to to try and get a, a, a kind of mature code base onto something like that isn't it it is yeah uh, i think one of the big flaws in OpenSSL was a missing break statement mm. and it it didn't look like it was missing because <laughs> of the way that it was formatted but yeah to to put that onto a legacy code base i mean you can automate a lot of that but if you've got lots of open pull requests mm. then you're gonna have a bad time <laughs> you're yeah. gonna be in merge hell for a bit but i guess you could run it on all the all the open branches um i guess it's just being aware of the cost of that i think i was um it was joe bell actually i saw joe bell tweet about um he's running a kind of medium-sized open source project and he's talking about how that depender bot on github yeah. um, is becoming a second job <laughs> because <laughs> it's opening pull requests as fast as he can close them and obviously you can turn things off here and there but yeah his point was more you know that, that sort of analysis while helpful for you know really severe um issues is 
great it can get a bit pedantic and <laughs> yeah it's tricky isn't it and especially with something like the node the npm ecosystem especially cause the, there's so many tiny little packages that do one tiny thing and if that gets updated all the time yeah. <laughs> you're going to have a really bad time of it which um, which in a, in a positive way it shows the speed of the ecosystem it's moving fast you know people are innovating and, and chipping away at stuff I, I do see that as a positive I mean you know, we do joke but the, the, it's a fast moving ecosystem for a reason I think that's great yeah 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 I mean your slower moving ecosystems like your ruby gems are yeah. quite they're, they sort of feel a bit larger and a bit more stable mm. to me and you've got your um what was it? Uh, bundler. There's some sort of bundler security check thing. Yeah, I can't remember the actual bundler audit or something like something that. Something like that. Yeah. I think that was one of the early sort of audit checking things for package managers. Well, that's um, that's why Cat's doing the the work of the of the Lord, isn't it? Really, he's, he's, he seems to have found a perverse um, joy in in building package managers of different varieties. <laughs> oh <laughs> Which is, God! But, but but it turns out he's really fucking good at it. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> um, and obviously that's changed the ecosystem for Ruby, and and, and I think he was responsible for yarn as well wasn't he so yes yeah yeah you know really changed the face of how people work with those applications and i think it's great um i think another thing that helps with web applications is just making sure you've got your your house in order in terms of the the owasp stuff yeah. so they've if that website is just a treasure trove of good stuff to do yeah um and the obvious things that frameworks will do out the box for you like hashing passwords but not using md5 just making sure you're using the latest yeah. recommendations and that the the complexity is correct um because computers are just getting quicker and quicker and your salted hashed passwords will be crackable yeah. at yeah. some point yeah. <laughs> if you leave a database on a laptop or on in an open public s3 bucket someone will figure out how to how to break it eventually we only have to look at haveabeenowned.com um, to find out how... <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. How that is. <laughs> I think yeah. that's that's why a lot of the frameworks, you know, we, I know we talk a lot about Laravel and, and Rails, but the, the early kind of um, standards that they set in terms of password management and in terms of just general hygiene for, you know, you're dealing with the user record, these are the things you should probably do around passwords and security and yeah. all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, and that's been built into the PHP language now with um, the new password hash functions right. and it can check whether it needs rehashing based on the difficulty and stuff uh, right, and nice. frameworks taking advantage of that I think that's where the really interesting thing comes with um you know libraries that initially um, establish those standards and start to they start to seep into frameworks and then also they start to seep into the actual language design like you just mentioned with PHP I think it's it's nice how you know a single library can influence you know a language and influence the wider ecosystem inside of PHP for example that's that's great yeah absolutely um, I also think um, a really important thing to do is make sure that you're rotating keys as well um, mm. and I know that's something that often gets overlooked Yeah, but they can very easily get onto de developer machines and they might not be no longer with you mm. um, a good thing I guess these days around sort of good defaults I guess is that a lot of laptops that ship will have things like Firevolt 2 for example of a Mac is really good Right. so um, having a sort of encrypted drive is is the kind of security that we we wished for years ago yeah. and now nobody switches on <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's it's completely seamless and actually quick 
Yeah. And for people to not enable that seems a bit daft to me. I mean, hardware now is just so capable, isn't it? You know, it's definitely come on so long, so far that we can just do that sort of on-the-fly encryption and everything a lot, a lot more easier. Yeah. Well, they 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 really used the iPhone as a testbed for that because they had invented a whole new file system just for iPhone. Right. They did. Um, a sort of on-device upgrade for people from the old file system to the new one, pretty much transparently, <laughs> without anyone realising. Um, but it's APFS, and it had it, it had this sort of drive encryption built in, and right. it's completely seamless. And Apple build hardware that, so, that helps speed that up. Uh, Microsoft's got a similar sort of thing that you can enable, um, but it just helps with that lost laptop issue. Mm. Um, it's because the the actual Windows login isn't really any sort of security at all without encryption. You can just reset any password if you just get access to the the physical drive. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting when you mentioned about the um, you know rotating keys and and keeping on top of that sort of hygiene. I think. Um, I've been looking a lot into immutable infrastructures recently as part of some green engineering work. And I think it's really important that we get comfortable with, you know, recycling pods, for example, making sure that we can have the automation in place to do that sort of recycling of keys and whatever else really easily. Yeah. Um, and, and really kind of uh, differentiate your kind of long lived credentials that maybe are not as easy to change in one place um, versus those sorts of keys that are, are much more easily rotated and much safer to do so yeah absolutely and you'd want to make sure you're not you haven't got any hacks in that sort of area of the code base <laughs> yeah. yeah um but yeah i think yeah i think physical access to devices is a big problem um especially with things like you know you've got the rubber ducky where you can program it to run a sequence of commands because the, the thing about computers is they they're designed to trust the human that's in front of it <laughs> and the other problem is that you can plug human interface devices into USB sockets, mm. which it by default trusts. <laughs> so, <laughs> which may not be a human. <laughs> which may not be a human. Yeah. So there is a bit of a flaw in there. Uh, so if you leave a computer unlocked and someone uh, walks by and they know you've got a Mac, they can pop a little USB stick in. It can type a known set of keystrokes which will open terminal mm. maybe curl something off the internet then that's, that's it they're in that, yeah. they've got your computer now yeah. and it's taken them three seconds which <laughs> is quite terrifying yeah um and obviously they'd have a different one for a windows machine or a mac but you could easily see how someone could fumble their way past the receptionists like have mm. a bit of a laugh and a joke and then stick a usb stick in the back of a computer it's not beyond the wit of man. In no. fact, we worked with a security company where one of their checks was to send somebody across to the office, just an actor, and just see how far they could get, like <laughs> just by being nice and maybe having a high-vis jacket or a delivery or a pizza or whatever it is. And you can get pretty far. Yeah, um, that's better than any dependency scanning then, isn't it? <laughs> really? I mean, that's a much more exciting but probably less common way to attack a business. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and the other thing you could do is just apply for a job there. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, yeah, there's you know there's always been uh, many uh, examples of history where employees have been possibly the weakest point of, uh, of security. Well, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'd like a new contracting role at <laughs> yeah. insert name of company here. Yeah, um, that wouldn't be a good, uh, <laughs> be good at all, would it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I. 
just on that I've, I've just got a, a memory from somewhere um, from years ago I don't know if you saw it, it was, I think it was a tweet or a, a, a Instagram video or something of a guy with a high-vis jacket and he went to uh, an event and he just saw how far backstage you could get and I think he got on, on stage um, so it shows yeah. with the right imitating the right credentials <laughs> you can get wherever you want people are very trusting as well yeah um, and they don't want to be the idiot that's not let the inspector person out <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so it's yeah I always find myself overly cautious to the point where I always text everyone like, are we expecting somebody to check the roof? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that's way away from the computers, but you yeah. have to double check, don't you? Um, yeah, that, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to be that guy, but, but, <laughs> but equally it's so easy. And that, that's what social engineering relies on, you know, getting your, card, getting your guard down or trying to catch someone who's just, uh, you know, not fully concentrating on, on what's going on. Yeah. So yeah, you it. can check the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've, we've talked a bit about what makes a secure app. Um, you know, we did touch on the 12 factor stuff previously when we talked about platforms like Heroku and, and other kind of deploy targets. What are the what other things make that secure app? You know, what other things from 12 factor can we learn? What other things from, you know, all the other things that you mentioned today we can learn from? The biggest thing for 12 factor that I think makes it secure is there's no locally fixed storage and they, it can be destroyed at any point and yeah. usually will be on every deploy. The the thing that I see with Windows machines that are in the wild mm. is they're often like cattle, aren't they? They're, they? That's what they call them, like these long running. Yeah. They've installed all the right things on it and they leave it because it works. Yeah. <laughs> and you just install stuff and layer upon layer of stuff and crust and that's, that's remote access things and it's it becomes this horrible mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's why um, I'm, I'm really leaning heavily on that immutable infrastructure thing. You know, have, have something that you know the, the state doesn't persist in that particular instance that's sitting right there. Yeah. Um, and that's you know the twelve factor kind of um, kind of rules, I guess. I don't know what do you call it? Rules or guidelines? Kind of dictate how you should approach that. Yeah, it, it becomes much much more difficult for someone to get into your infrastructure if whatever they've put there is deleted on the next deploy mm. and you're checking your dependencies and nothing's permanent. Yeah. And yeah, it's a much more harsh environment for them if they have to infiltrate it in a different way. Um, it also makes um, a lot of other things a lot easier in terms of how you scale the application, how you distribute load, how you how how you locate the workloads if you want to relocate them yeah. into different regions, if you want to do load testing or exactly. whatever it is, yeah, or have exactly the same environment on your dev machine, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, some of these snowflake environments are very difficult to reproduce. Mm. If you feel like your code base is hard to to sort of run exactly as it is in prod locally then it's probably got some issues yeah. <laughs> um that that 12 factor moving towards 12 factor app methodology would fix so how do you think that ties into because i've actually not had a chance to play with it much yet but github have brought out the um i forget the name of that new um kind of environment setup where you can run your environment in the cloud what's it called is it github workspaces i think it obviously yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> obviously it's called that 
Um, yes, yeah, so that looks really interesting because it maybe allows you to, first of all, it takes the computing power away from your, your laptop. So it makes, you know, the dev machines a lot more primitive, I guess, yeah, or, yeah. or could be. Um, but I think it's really interesting in, in terms of that kind of recreatable environments. You know, a new a new starter joins on day one, they can just spin up the workspace and off you go. There's no, oh God, do you remember the days of like, <laughs> <laughs> just give us five days to just get my environment up and running, I'll yeah, be right with you. Yeah. Brew install, oh, help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everything's going wrong. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I suppose the developer sh machine is the, is the biggest weak spot in the in in the tool, in the sort of chain of events at the moment, because you do find devs, me included, where you'll just copy and paste brew install commands off the internet until things work. Yeah. And that probably isn't the most secure thing in the world. Not when you can hijack the clipboard and chuck <laughs> naughty stuff in there. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people would wanting to have the making sure that if you pasted an enter it didn't actually press enter in ah, a lot of right. terminals that's been a request that we had on hyper when i worked on right. the the hyper terminal from the zeit guys um but yeah it's it's it is a tricky one um, I, I remember the I, th I think a lot of them still do actually a lot of the installers where you just kind of curl um something straight into the terminal and execute it straight away yeah. um that's quite dangerous um yeah. although super convenient so yeah very very handy <laughs> yeah which is kind of what security comes down to right convenience sometimes over yeah um and i do think that both Windows and Mac are becoming much, much more secure for consumers in that they're trying to tunnel people down the sort of app store mm. walled garden route. So on a Mac, if you have an unsigned DMG or binary that you want to open, you have to right click on it, then press open, then tick a box. Then, yeah. And it doesn't make it, your mum wouldn't do that. No, but <laughs> but you know, you know that process because that's why you have to do that. But yeah. Yeah, it's, so for us, because we, we're developers and we need all these sort of cobbled together bits of code. <laughs> like, like a lot of developer tools like Flipper and things like that aren't necessarily signed and things mm. like you have to, you have to do weird things to make them run. It's interesting because, you know, and there's been a, a topic of much debate in the Mac community because Macs were made obviously not the very start of the Macs, but, you know, around the noughties, you know, there was such a popular developer choice for machines. You know, it was a really important thing that they were accessible for developers. They really helped sell a lot of the, Mo uh, the Mac Pro models, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, then I think recently people are kind of like, well, I don't want this restricted environment, even though it is better for the overall user, because I'm, I like being a power user. I like being able to copy and paste bash scripts and <laughs> execute them immediately and things like that. Yeah, maybe... Maybe we are doing it wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of people move to Macs because, I think, because of Ruby on Rails community partially mm. and the, the tutorial videos and the people, the other frameworks that followed. It's quite Unix-like. Yeah. It felt comfortable. And out of the box, it had most of the stuff already installed. So you command, well, obviously it goes reasonably stale quite quickly these days. But, you know, initially you'd have, you know, Rails, Ruby, you know, PHP, Python, everything out of the box was, was on there ready to go, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and now Windows are catching up. So they've got, they had a, a project with Canonical, who are the guys behind Ubuntu. Yeah. And they wanted to bring uh, Linux apps to Windows. I think the original project, idea behind the project was to bring Android apps to the Windows phone. I don't know if you remember Windows phone. <laughs> <laughs> I do. That failed. Um, but they scrapped that, but they kept the underlying stuff and then they progressed it even further. So they basically built a, a Linux compatible kernel layer on top of the Windows kernel, which they called a Linux subsystem. 
and then you can just run Linuxy things on top of Windows, which I think is pretty clever. It is really clever. I just hate Windows, but, <laughs> but they, they did a really good job there because before that it was CYG Win and like the, all sorts of PowerShell bastardizations. I remember yeah. all sorts of horrible stuff. Yeah, and now it feels like a more developer-friendly ecosystem, especially now they've got VS Code and that's all tightly integrated into mm. everything. Now it seems like VS Code has just won. It does, and it's in, it's interesting uh, the recent move. Obviously, um, GitHub bought by Microsoft so it's a slightly different move for them I guess but you know obviously they um, GitHub created Atom and, and now they've kind of I don't think they've dropped support for Atom but obviously VS Code has won the overall um, kind of fight there and obviously workspaces and everything's all tied into it now isn't it yeah it is it'll be interesting to see how that sort of pans out in terms of security um, I do think using an in the cloud workspace that can be refreshed and deleted and recreated mm. is definitely the more secure route yeah um yeah it's 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 that's probably the way things are going isn't it it's really cool as well because it means all those things that we just talked about of what windows have to do to simulate different environments it's not it's not required anymore because you're no longer needing to really install anything locally apart from code and and that's it yeah i guess the only applications where that gets more difficult are the sort of big data and other applications where you've got lots and lots of yeah. measurements and or yeah, big data sets which become a bit unwieldy. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, definitely for building basic web apps, definitely makes sense to do do that in the cloud. A really good sign of a good code base is automated tests. Yes. and I know we talked about this last time, and we're probably going to harp on about it in every single episode. But a good automated test suite will help you find a ton of bugs, including yes. security issues. Um, let's say you have some sort of basic permission system in your app yeah. you can just assert i'm logged in as this user they have these permissions can i see that yes can i see that no these are edge cases that you're not going to want a human to test yeah every single time you do a release but a computer can test it really quickly yeah so you should definitely write that into your app i think that automated side of, of testing is obviously usually popular over the last how many years but I guess what makes a, what makes a good automated test suite? Uh, what makes you know what makes that suite something that you can rely on for security uh, purposes? Because obviously, testing in general to make sure that we're hitting the requirements of the application is great. Um, but security testing is a slightly different lens on that. You know, you have to think with a different mindset of an attacker instead instead of just satisfying the requirements of this page does what I've the, the product owners told me to do. For, yeah. You know? No, absolutely. And I think to have to have a good view on what makes a good security test, you'd probably need to get an external security consultancy yeah. firm in to do external pen testing. Yeah. So they'll often have two options, like a black box test where they don't know anything about what your app does, which I'd recommend as a first step. Yeah. And then you can actually also give them your source code and get them to break it as well, mm. which is slightly more involved and they'll find lots more subtle, tiny bugs that probably are less likely to be exploited. And that's when you'll go through the list and say, well, we're not fixing that, we are fixing that. <laughs> yeah, I do think some of the things that do come back are a bit, Yeah. am I going to fix that? <laughs> I, guess, I guess you want them to be thorough though, right? You know, that's the whole point. If, if they came back and you fixed everything, you'd probably be a little bit concerned they've not quite caught everything. Yeah, that's it. Um, external pen testing company, definitely a good way to get a list of things to add to your tests. Um, and then 
just add add anything you fix as a test if it's easy to do so so you know that if there's a regression it gets up, gets picked up straight away mm. um the i think there's sort of two kinds of tests there's one which is it's just there as a scaffold to help you build something mm. and then there's a test that actually tests some critical bit of functionality that you need to ensure that remains yeah and splitting those out and knowing which are which is important i think and on, on a lot of modern suites you can tag those different kinds of tests so in certain ci environments you could just use when to run certain longer running tests and all that sort of stuff yeah that's it um i do think people need to be a bit more ruthless about deleting tests yeah because if you have this large lumbering test suite that takes hours to run mm. people are more likely to skip certain tests or skip it on their development environment mm. and try and force things through <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and that's when things get missed and things start to go wrong that's always an issue isn't it a bloated test suite over you know there's been accruing loads of tests over time i think especially when i started engineering there's loads of things that i was just writing tests for that i didn't really think about and didn't really provide any value so testing every possible you know method on a on a, on a instance or something like that not really much use to that you know obviously unit tests do have their purpose yeah but really maybe just 10 tests instead of 10,000 of a different kind of test would be actually the most valuable for that application yeah and you sometimes you fall into the trap of feeling quite productive because you're like oh i'll test this different <laughs> permutation yeah even though you know it's the same yeah. pass through the code base pretty much yeah it touches all the same functions <laughs> all there yeah yeah um but you feel nice because you've added 300 lines to code base <laughs> yeah. today on a hangover, so it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Timesheet's time looking good. <laughs> yeah, that's all correct. <laughs> it's um, true, though. I think I think that that's underestimated as well. You know, as a as a team that's working on a project, you know, do, how often do you sit down and discuss? You know, as a team. These are these are the paths that we're prioritizing. These are the kind of tests that we're prioritizing. Especially a lot of the time, you know, there's some deadlines that you've got to meet. There's some there's some pressure. Yep. Um, I think it's really important to have an open discussion about where the most value from a testing point of view can be done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this difference between sort of a user breaking the app and a security flaw and knowing the difference between the two yeah. is pretty important um, so the interesting thing there is so say you've got a, a, an app that has a cv in the wild you, you go and you upgrade um you know a certain dependency so that's no longer an issue would you write a test for the cve or do you just assume it's fixed because you've upgraded the dependency i'd probably just assume it's fixed yeah, yeah. um it kind of depends what it is if it's a library that's really built into your application yeah you might write a separate test for it like a permissions framework yeah something like that um a common one that i see is um mass assignment is still a problem yeah since the beginning of orm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's where you get some user data from the browser and the controller whatever whatever saves it to the database and it doesn't check which fields are writable and which aren't. So you might have a is admin field, for yeah. example, yeah. and you can set that as one because the developer's gone. It doesn't work unless I add is admin to the set list of fillable fields. So that fixes it. <laughs> um, but they're not really thinking about what they're doing because they don't understand what a hacker would do. Yeah. And I do think you can have junior devs that will storm into a project, fix a load of bugs, actually cause a load of security problems. Yeah. Um, even simple things you see like people passing in like account IDs and stuff in post requests 
Are you validating that against the session? You yeah. should be. Why? Why are you doing that? <laughs> <laughs> but the things that seem seem obvious to a senior dev might not necessarily seem obvious to a, a junior or a mid. So code reviews, I think, are probably quite important. Yeah, definitely. Um, even if it is, it's just blocking out a day or two to to, to pair and sift through the code. Yeah, you'd be surprised how quickly you can read an entire code base if you if you sat with someone else. If you're on your own, it's a bit of a slog. Yeah. <laughs> if you're with the person that wrote it, it's not too bad, and yeah. you can actually go through and go, "That looks weird to me. Let's mm. test this." Yes, there's a security problem. Or it's, it's funny how a little bit of distance and time from a code base, you can have a, a different perspective as well. I, I recently reviewed an older one, um, and I was articulating it for the sake of a particular handover. And some of the code I was looking at, I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> and some of it wasn't necessarily not secure. It's just, yeah. I would never do that now. Yeah, and, and you, you almost doubt that you'd wrote it, and then you do get annotated. Yeah, well, like, oh, no, that was me. Oh, well, <laughs> That's what, awful. What this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think it's good. You know, a lot, a lot of frameworks, again, are, are kind of trying to embed those best practices. Uh, that mass assignment thing was something that Rails tried to mitigate quite early on. Obviously, it still happens, especially yeah. with the popularity of document databases and things like that now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, with all the will in the world, people will... will just try and hammer their app to work. Yeah. And if that means yeah. letting anyone assign anything on an object, <laughs> they'll do it. Yeah. Um, and even though we've got all these things to prevent SQL injections, you still see them. I, I quite enjoy the creativity of SQL injection because, you know, a lot of the common ones have been patched now. So the fact that you can have to get some SQL through a URL param all the way through the router, all the way into, you know, controller and then model and then into the... I, I've got to admire the... Well, yeah, <laughs> fair play to them. Yeah. <laughs> but the Laravel framework's pretty good because you do have to actually write the word raw when you're passing in raw SQL. Oh, okay. But what will happen is... A developer will have a problem. Eloquent doesn't do it out of the box. Yeah. They'll find a discussion on some forum. They've used where raw. They'll yeah. copy paste it into the app, and then they'll paste user data into it. And like, <laughs> you see the word raw, but you ignored it, and it's gone <laughs> in anyway. It's one of those situations as well when when you're in a particular spicy scenario where you've got to do some complex SQL. Maybe you'll be passing params into a much larger statement, and you know. Libraries are getting a lot better at that now, you know, in terms of checking string inter interpolations, you know, more secure. But as you said, you, you can't protect people from themselves. Yeah, yeah. If people want to shoot themselves in the foot, there <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Here> you go. <laughs> so I think another way to shoot yourself in the foot is to write your own crypto into your app or hashing function. Yeah. Um, and I do think if you if you feel like you're reinventing the wheel, you probably are necessarily, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but you'd be surprised how often you see that in a in a junior code base. Yeah, maybe they don't know that, that these things exist, mm. and it's it's very important that you use modern out the box crypto and mm. never roll your own. Don't assume that you can come up with something <laughs> <laughs> just because you can't figure out how to circumvent it doesn't mean someone else can't. Yeah. Um, especially if your code base falls into the wrong hands. It's interesting because it's almost a rite of passage, I think. Sometimes you feel like you need to create an implementation to really understand it, which is an amazing tool. Yeah. But then also probably don't use that same implementation that hasn't been battle-tested in, in an app like that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think around shooting yourself in the foot, obviously using other people's code is not entirely risk-free, but, yeah. but writing something like a hashing algorithm or an encryption tool is is pretty dangerous yeah because anyone like from a junior dev up to the most senior dev in the world 
can create something that they themselves can't break. Yeah. Because that's how it works. <laughs> just blind to all the all the imperfections of what you just created. Exactly. And that, I think that sort of goes back to why I think getting an external security company in to look at stuff is important. Yeah. Because they will see the application in a completely different way to, than you do. Mm. And, and have that fresh pair of eyes as well. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely recommend that. I agree completely. Right, well, I think we're about out of time there. Um, yeah, huge thank you for listening to Offscript by Hey. Uh, do check out the other content online if you Google Hey Radio. Uh, I'm from Parallax. If you Google Parallax Leads, you can see what we're up to. Don't forget to hit subscribe and join us in a few weeks for some more content. 